Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 215, recorded January 6th, one of my favorite dates, 21. I'm Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. And we have Jason. Hello. Yeah, hey Jason, nice to have you here. Jason McDonald. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Oh, and Brian, I think he's going to cover um, something we haven't really covered much on the show, uh, GUIs. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, to be honest, I know this is like a long-standing joke in the show for long-time listeners, but we actually haven't covered GUIs that much recently. But there was a long stretch where we did. Yeah, yeah, that was probably like a year ago. Yeah, yeah. I like my programming projects and my brownies to be GUI. <laughs> and fudge, come on, fudge too. <laughs> and is good. And you like bad jokes, so you'll fit in nicely. Oh, absolutely. No, if anyone likes puns, follow my Twitter. I post an original every Monday. <laughs> nice. I heard that there's going to be a lot of exciting news for space in 2021. So I kind of want to bring a little space and Python together. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So the first topic that I want to talk about is this video done by a woman in the UK who is a astrophysicist. She goes by the name Dr. Becky, which is uh, cool. She has a fantastic YouTube channel. She's also a Python developer and she works in cosmology, which is pretty cool. And she did this video that I'd just like to highlight for people who maybe are coming into Python, not from the, hey, I'm going to create a, um, a microservice set of APIs talking to Docker, but more from the, hey, I do some kind of science or data science or something like that. And the, the video is called the five ways that I use code as an astrophysicist. Cool, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So she basically lays out the idea of as a modern day scientists, you can barely do your job if you're not doing some sort of programming. And of course, one of the best languages, technologies for programming these days is Python in the data science space, right? Surprise, surprise. Yeah, no big surprise there since 2012, I would say. And so the she covers five different things with examples of each. So I thought that was just a, a nice way for people who are either getting into Python from a science side, or maybe they're teachers and they want People ask, well, why should I not just use MATLAB or some other custom tool? Like, let me show you. <laughs> so here's some really cool examples of real astronomy being done with Python, but it's also super accessible to you know, even like middle schoolers, I would say. And number one is image processing of galaxies from telescopes. So you can do things like noise removal. So it turns out that when you're taking pictures of galaxies, even if there's no actual background light or disturbances, just the the basic disturbance in the actual sensors themselves will put little marks and imperfections in the images. So using Python to go through and like clean those up makes it much easier to get started. And the size of these pictures and the amount of data coming in from some of these new telescopes is stunningly large. Yeah, for sure. Uh, another one is data analysis. So if you're trying to find the brightness of some part of an image, say maybe you're looking for a transit of an exoplanet, right? You want to constantly monitor the brightness of a star. Or in her case, what she's studying, it just blows my mind. She's studying galaxies. Like when you see pictures of stars and you're zooming, you're like, oh, that's not a star. That's a galaxy. Right? It's just, you know, like I still can't really get my mind around that. But she talks about one of her data sets that has 600,000 rows of like brightness of galaxies. So 600,000 galaxies, they all have information about that they're comparing. So that's pretty awesome, right? Yep. Uh, model fitting. Um, there's an example about theory that most galaxies have a supermassive black hole in the middle. There's also this 
idea that possibly the size of the black hole and the size of the galaxy, these things kind of grow and mass together. So she has all this data. She's like, well, let's do some statistical fits of black hole size and galaxy size. Also, the color of galaxies can indicate the relative speed or rate of star formation. And the age. And the age, exactly. Yeah, all, all tied together. And so she's using Python for that. Uh, finally, data visualization, you know, pretty straightforward, but you drawing graphs and pictures. And the last part that I was my favorite part is uh, simulation. So there's two really cool examples. What happens if a star gets too close to a black hole uh, and gets, she said, spaghettiified? That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is examples of galaxies colliding, which is just, again, mind blowing, but really cool computational examples of all that. So I wanted to highlight this video because it's super accessible, but it's also really neat to show like concrete examples of real science being done with Python. Yeah, I thought it was cool when she was talking to her her colleague about you know, building the simulations of the of the of the universe. Like, yeah. You know, you have a simulation of the universe. Where do you start on that? It's like you, you we think we have project blocking. You know, it's like you start on a project. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to build a tool. <laughs> where do I begin? It's like I'm going to build a simulation of the entire universe. Where do I start? Exactly. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm going to simulate gravity at a galactic <laughs> scale. Let's just do that. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. So if people are out there and they're interested in this kind of stuff, um, yeah. This is all in uh, one video? Yeah, this is all in one video. Huh. Yeah. And Robert says star or galaxy. It's big. Yeah, they're they're both huge, but obviously, I mean, it's just like I can't get my head around like galaxy size stuff. It's yeah. so, so insane. Star is in a star as a, a primitive type in, in, in the universe <laughs> and, the, and then a galaxy is a collection. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I just so, immediately go to right there. Yeah, like yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah so brian it's it's like a 15 minute video that half of it is the stuff that i talked about then half is what jason touched on she actually interviews one of her colleagues who basically does the more uh, the simulation side of programming that's pretty cool yeah yeah i'll have yeah. to check that out yeah it's definitely worth it yeah i enjoyed it i don't do very much data science actually at all and so it's like you know understanding seeing data science stuff is, is always interesting because i but most of my work is in like you know, application development i don't usually work with a lot of data so it's see that side of it explained in this really cool relevant way instead of like well the statistics and the number of people you know who you know buy you know cheese every weekend at the supermarket is not interesting galaxies wow <laughs> exactly <laughs> getting, getting better click-through rates on your ads is not not super compelling but yeah. yeah i think it's really valuable to see alternate perspectives right we all get into our own little world of like this is what programming is this is what python is for and then you know it's it's bigger i want to talk about uh numpy a little bit all right so, tell us about it well i've i've actually i've used numpy off and on a lot um and it's definitely a staple for scientific use of machine learning and sorts of stuff but um but i'm starting to use it more and i've realized i realized that i i, th I had the wrong mental model so i like think of arrays kind of just like lists but and so I uh, came across this um, article. Uh, it's a couple years old, but it's a visual intro to NumPy and data representation. And to me, it really helps a lot, like um, to to help me understand what you can do with it and just have a good mental picture of what what the arrays are in in NumPy. So it talks about arrays, matrices, and and in in D arrays, which are n dimensional. But like for instance, um, even just creating an array, I knew how to create an array. I mean, you just kind of initialize it with a list and you get an array but i didn't know you could do like just say uh i want a list of ones or a list of zeros or yeah. a, an array of ones or array of zeros, just a random array pre-filled with random numbers that's pretty cool. um and then he talks about um 
you know, arithmetic you can do with them and slicing and stuff. You know, um, Brian, like when we talk about Pythonic code all the time, like, oh, you could write code in this way where you kind of hack a, a numerical for loop, but you should do it this other way and that would be more Pythonic. I suspect there's also a... A numpic way. A, a way, right? Yeah. Sort of like filling up stuff. You're like, oh, you should just do ones on this one. And then, then you don't, you always, like, there's a lot of cool other ways of sort of conceptualizing things, right? Yeah. Well, and, and it's it's worth remembering, you know, I've, I've said this quite a few times, um, not here, obviously, but I, I, I regularly like to remind people abstractions are there to save us typing, never to save us thinking. It's like, it, it helps to have that mental model, as you put it, Brian, you know, straight, because if, if, if your mental model is wrong, it can really wind up, well, you're, you're prone to both cargo cult programming, well, I do it this way because it's the way I was taught, or trying to, you know, ill fit a pattern that's familiar to, you know, the wrong sort of problem when you don't realize what it is you're really working with. So understanding what's happening under the hood, even if, you know, you don't know all the technical details of the implementation, still understanding how it's doing things is important to, you know, choosing the right job. Idiomatic yeah. patterns always rely Yeah, on. yeah. And you'll hear stuff like, oh, well, Python is slow. It's like, well, because you're doing it wrong. <laughs> don't do it that way. Yeah. For example, use something like NumPy, right? And like, for instance, one of the things I really loved about this article was the explanation of dot product because um, I, I've heard this before. I've never had to use a dot product, but it like somebody described it to me several times and I'm like, yeah, okay, weird. But then like the visual representation of it, I like, like just stared at it and read it for like, you know, 30 seconds. And I'm like, oh, that's easy. Now I get it. And I'll, I'll have it forever now because of, of that sunk in there. Pretty good. Um, yeah, the, that's awesome. One of the reasons why I went to it, uh, I had this problem is that I, um, I, I get, I have like large arrays, but they're not like huge. Um, they're like in the thousands say of numbers. And I need to make sure that one array is like comparing to another. I, I know equal works, I care for equal, but I wanted to compare item by item if to make sure every element is less than the other, the element in the other array. Um, less than or equal. I didn't know how to do that. And I'm like, I think NumPy would probably do that easy. Can, can you do one NumPy array less than the other? Yeah. So if you, if you say less than, it compares it element by element and it gives you uh, a list of true or false. And then you can do all. So yeah, doing all on it. Yeah. You can just say all of, of these two arrays less than or equal to each other. And I get exactly what I want in a very expressive, simple line of code. And yeah. It's that kind of stuff I was thinking of when I was talking about like the NumPick. Num, yeah. Num, Numpionic way or whatever. Idiomatic numpy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Is is like that's like one or two lines and it's really fast. Whereas you could loop over each item individually and it not only is more code, but it's also slower. Yeah. Well and also I like I also have to I like that there's the intermediate step of that there's gives me a list of true and false too, because I also on the debugging side, I need to be able to like wrap this in something and pick like say the first five elements that are not matching. I mean I don't want if I if if it if it's false, the whole statement's false. I don't want to like just say you know list all the thousands that are wrong, but I I want to be able to like list a few to say at least these are not in the right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's good. I'm gonna try yeah. out NumPy now. <laughs> I now have a reason to to, to to try it out. Exactly. Like, why am I not using this in certain situations? Magnus uh, on the live stream says uh, two dimensions is okay. Three is hard, but in then, then my mind blows. Yeah, I actually did a bunch of math research in four-dimensional stuff, two-dimensional but complex numbers. So four-dimensional, sort of, and yeah, it's just it's just hard. Well, what one one of my weird knacks as a programmer is I actually can think in six dimensions. It's it's I, I mentioned before the podcast I had a head injury a few years ago, so I'm a minor traumatic savant. I can think in six dimensions, and the best way I can explain it if you're trying to do it without having a really bizarre brain like mine is think of 
uh, think of the fourth dimension as a timeline. And for each timeline, you have a, you have space represented as a cube, but yeah. then you have this row of cubes, which represents the timeline. It becomes a lot easier to think of four dimensional arrays when you think of it in that fashion. Yeah. And the way that we did it, we actually had animations of that three dimension thing and the animations were moving through that, that bit. Right. Yeah. But still it's, it's, <laughs> it's no easy, no easy thing. Yeah. It's easier when you're an animator to, <laughs> to wrap your head around 4d than if you're just a, you know, an ordinary yeah. run of the mill programmer like most of us. Brian, would you say that that's a, a GUI type of solution? Uh, no. <laughs> may, 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 maybe you could do something with cute. Yeah, with yeah, okay. Cutie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Jason? Yeah, who knows? It's possible. <laughs> so uh, that's our next topic. Take it, grab it, Jason. Yeah, well, okay. Well, I, I, um, so I was really excited to discover the Cute 6 just released on December 8th. So uh, Cute, it, it, yeah, it is officially pronounced Cute, although it's much, it's very debatable. People are like, oh, it's QT, it's Cute. Gif, gif, come on. Yeah, yeah exactly. Anyway, whatever you're going to call it, it just released. Um, and this includes the Python binding. So um, PySide 6, uh, Shibokan 6, which is the, the, so PySide 2 was QT5, as if that made sense. PySide 6 is is QT6, QT6. See, now I'm doing it. Anyway, so that just released. Um, and you also have the PyQT6 if you prefer uh, Riverbank's version. But it, in whatever case, you're going to wind up with um with all the all the Qt6 features, um, I think the the coolest thing here is if you're doing uh, if you're doing like you know really fancy sort of um, graphics is that uh, previously uh, Qt5 and, and prior had this hard dependency on OpenGL, and they've actually put in a what they call the rendering hardware interface with an abstraction layer into into Qt. So now um, it can natively support whatever the 3D graphics driver is on that device, whether it's DirectX, Vulkan, Metal, whatever you want it to work with. If it uses the native by default. You could you could tell it to use whatever whatever you want. Um, oh, that is so cool. Yeah, um, and there's a bunch of other optimizations and, and fixes to have in here. I am really excited because I discovered, and this was actually introduced in 5.15, uh, but they now support Snake Case for those of us who are like pep eight addicts who yes. really hate the fact that cute kind of seemed to force you to use the the camel case you can use snake case there is a there is a um a, a setting for it um you can also use properties instead of getters and setters as of q6 yeah. so you can okay. just rely on properties and that is it makes it a lot easier to <laughs> write you know idiomatic python code that is cute which is kind yeah. of fun well it just feels wrong to write you know get with set oh, with yeah all absolutely. those things yeah, they also that, have this that, cool thing called property binding where you can actually link those together now too. It's like you can link the, the width and the height. So when you change the width, the height automatically changes. Nice. Yeah, I really want to build some stuff with Qt. I've I've got a few app ideas in mind. What I don't have is time. <laughs> Sadly. Can you help me with that, Jason? Can you help me? Just have more time well, in my life. I, 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 I know I have a reputation as a time lord, but unfortunately I can't control the stream of flow of time <laughs> there. If I find my TARDIS, I'll pick you up and 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 drop you off, you know. 10 years ago and you can you know, relive those 10 years and do additional things. Okay. Yeah, nice. Nice. Yeah. Be, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Actually, a couple of questions from the live stream. Magnus asks, um, any news about cute going mobile? I actually am ashamed to admit. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know either, <laughs> but the, I think the bigger, more interesting question would, could pie cute the stuff like, could, would, could, would you be able to write a Python cute application and make it mobile? Right. I think that's where it gets really interesting because um, there's other if you pick another language like C++ or something, there's other options you might be able to, to choose. And then uh, maybe, you know, this one you're going to ask, uh, are there any well-known Python apps built with Qt? 
Oh yeah, yeah. They're I'm on the spot. I'm trying to think of one. Mime. <laughs> it's not well known, but I built Time Card in Cute. If you look up, um, if you, if you look up Time Card, uh, it's just a time tracking um, app that I that, that I built. But actually, there's 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 quite a lot that's built built with Cute. Um, anything with a K in front of it. If you're if you're into KDE. Um, the, mm-hmm. the entire, the entire KDE stack is built on top of Qt, and there's actually quite a bit of it that's done in Python. So, uh, names are escaping me off the top of my head here, but, um, yeah, there's any, anything in the KDE universe is, is cute. And so you're either going to get C++ or Python. Python is certainly a lot faster to write. So, oh, FileZilla apparently is built, you know, one that I know that's written in it, um, for sure that I, it's like one of my favorite apps actually is, um, RoboMongo or Robo3T. It got renamed to, um, I believe it's just C++. It's not Python cute, but that one's a really nice one as well. Actually, there's a huge long list. I'll put it in the show notes over here, uh, of a bunch of apps written as well. So. It's a, it's definitely a lot easier to write write uh, something in. I've I've used a lot of different UI toolkits, and Qt's definitely one of the easiest to. Yeah, the thing that I like about it is it looks like it belongs because so many apps you build with these sort of cross platform things, and it's just like, well, okay, well, that's not how the file dialog's supposed to look. You you just know it's alien, but you're like, no, no, this looks this looks like it belongs here. Well, and packaging's the other half of it because, like, I tried to build something with Kivi, and I love Kivi from a, from a development standpoint. It's really cool. From a packaging standpoint, it's like beating yourself to death with a wet trout. So, <laughs> um, and and actually, if you're gonna do cross platform, then um, actually, um, GTK is horrible too because it's really hard to get it to package on Windows a lot of times. It yeah. just works. It just packages everywhere. Which yeah, that's great. Nice, nice. All right, um, Brian. <clears throat> I think this episode is brought to uh, everyone by us. Wonderful. We're good yeah, so we are. We're doing a lot of work out there, and as, as everyone probably knows, if you're into testing, check out Brian's PyTest book. If you're looking to take a Python course, we are just about to pass 200 hours of Python courses over at Talk Python Training. I'm working on a new course: how to build web apps, not web APIs, but web apps with Fast API. Super nice. neat stuff. So that's that should be out in a week or two. So anyway, yeah, I'm check also- that out. I wanted to bring up that um, there was kind of a spike in uh, the PyTest book sales in the last last quarter of 2020, and I'm hoping that like maybe some school using it try to help teach uh, testing while they're teaching software. Yeah, that'd be super cool. Yeah, it's nice to see more 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 stuff about stuff other than unit test. I mean, unit test has its place, but I when I wrote the chat, I've got a book coming out in May, and when I wrote the chapter on testing, and one of my editors was like, "Thank you for not forcing me to edit yet one more <laughs> unit test chapter." <laughs> Yeah. Nice. What's your book on? Oh, um, my book's called uh, Dead Simple Python. It just it it introduces the language of Python, the idiomatic practices of Python to people who are coming from another language. So mm-hmm. if you don't want to have to sit through yet one more explanation of what a variable or a function is or a class is, you can pick yeah. this up and it dives straight into the, the, the fine details of why idiomatic patterns are what they are in Python. Nice. That's yeah, that's a good idea. I, I, the courses or books that say we're going to pretend you know nothing about the world and we're going to force you to go through everything from scratch every time that that drives me crazy. Uh, you know what else drives me crazy, Brian, is uh, when my Python GC is doing stuff when I know that it doesn't need to do stuff. Yeah, I like to not have to think about the garbage collector. And you generally don't, right? Like one of the things that genuinely surprises me is the. The fact that we don't really talk about memory very much in Python. It's like, oh, okay, I think it cleans itself up. That's good. Now what? Let's go. Let's go about stuff, right? But if you dig into it, it's it's pretty interesting. There's a lot of stuff around allocation we've covered before, but it's quite unique. Um, but Python's also somewhat unique in the sense that it has like two modes. 
So it has reference counting, which I would say 98% of all like memory management cleanup stuff is in the reference counting side. This is totally made up these numbers, but there's a little, there's, I would say maybe even more like 99.5, unless you're building some kind of a certain kind of app, like with interesting algorithms, most apps don't create cycles. And the only reason we have garbage collection in addition to the reference counting is to catch those cycles, right? Um, You know, I've got a customer object. I've got it out of a SQL Alchemy database. It has a relationship over to the orders. I go to the orders. The orders have a link back to the customer. Maybe like traversing that lazy loaded list has created a cycle. And now I need the GC to save me. So the rule for when the garbage collector runs is you can ask it. You can say import the GC module. You say gc.getThreshold or thresholds. I can't remember if it's singular or plural uh, on my screen if I would switch to it. Singular. Get threshold. It returns three numbers. Uh, they're not the same units, which makes them really hard to understand. The first number is how many allocations of collection objects. So classes, dictionaries, lists, tuples, things that could contain other stuff. So things that could potentially be participants in a cycle, like numbers and strings are not even considered by the GC. But how many allocations of collection types are there that exceed the reference counting deallocation? So if I had a list and I put a thousand classes, class objects in it by allocating and filling it up, then I would hold on to a thousand and none of them would have become become garbage. So the first number that comes back is, well, how big is that number before we just run a GC no matter what? And the default is 700. So my example there, if I create a list of a thousand objects, that's a GC that's going to run. It doesn't matter if there's cycles, there's no cycles. It it just doesn't matter. Like I've made a thousand of them. That's over 700. So we're going to run a GC. And then the rest are like, how much do you run like a whole memory GC versus a local, a small, like recent object GC? And what it occurred to me is, you know, my website, there's a lot of pages that pull back thousands of items. And any website that uses a database and an ORM that pulls stuff back and hangs on to it and not just like streams over the items, but puts them maybe in a list or something temporarily. Anytime you do that more with a thousand, you're going to have the GC run, right? They're just looking for anything to throw away, basically. Yeah, but you know, you're still in the process of building the list of them. (laughs) (laughs) I got to get 10,000. Well, guess what? That means you're going to have 14 GCs and you're just in the process of building the list. I'm like, that's kind of weird. That, that, that seems excessive to me. And then I went and looked at the sitemap on Talk Python Training where we're pulling back like thousands of transcripts and all sorts of stuff to generate all the pages on there. 77. There's 77 GCs to render the sitemap. There's that's no good. cycles. There's not one. So I'm like, that's not good. Well, let me think about that for a second. So what I ended up doing was I said, well, what if I made the threshold 10,000? Actually, I ended up on 50,000. So only run the GC if you get more than 50,000 allocations without deallocation. What was really interesting is doing that made my unit tests, which were including many, many integration tests on Talk Python training, run 10 to 12% faster. Just setting that one line, and it basically does not use more memory, in my case. Is that crazy? Well, it makes sense. Most most issues of performance just come down to memory and how memory allocation and deallocation takes. I spend almost all my time in, in C++, more time in yeah. C++ than I do in Python. And you know, we don't have a garbage collector over there, so you have to do all this manually and, yeah. and doing you, you it right. You know how much work it is, it right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like doing it wrong is why why stuff's slow. People are like, well, Python's slower than C++. Well, not, it has the potential. C++ has the potential to be faster than Python, yeah. but it really depends on how you write that code because... Well-written code is always going to run faster than poorly written code. It doesn't matter what the two languages. Yeah. Yeah. And I I realized that in in my world, in my type of application, I almost never create cycles, but I often get back more than a 700 
class objects, which also have dictionaries potentially in the mix as they're like allocating the converting serializing into classes, like there's got to be a lot of places where that's happened. So I just set this number to say, you know what, let's waste a little bit of memory. And if there are cycles, we'll come back and get them later. And because there's almost no cycles, there's almost no memory growth. For example, so the server is running like eight worker processes, one of them. And I made this change. And I think over after running for a week without restarting any of the processes, it went from 1.89 gigs of memory usage to 1.91. So like 220 megs, I think it was 20 megs more memory usage. And yet like 10% speed up by just changing like one call at startup. It was insane. Well, so, and, and think about yeah. what Dr. Becky's code, it, you know, it, like, you know, go back to the astrophysicist, you yes, know, thing uh, yes. here, you know, with, with the sizes of data structures that she's doing or any data scientist who's listening, you know, they're usually dealing with 10,000, 100,000 million items. You know, you combine this with all the stuff that we talked about with NumPy and with data processing. And, you know, we talk about how long it takes to do some of these data regressions. How much would this be? Yeah, exactly. So if, if that data is being done in Python and it's not just purely being pushed down into the C data science layer, then yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think. Although I would, I would caution at the same time that, uh, that this is this, there's no such thing as a magic bullet. So you have to understand why this is going to speed things up and not just, well, I have to just copy and paste that line that my colleague has that he got from <laughs> Michael Kennedy because it'll make the code faster. No, you, you have to know why yeah. make the code yeah, faster. Yeah. It's an easy test. Some cases it makes sense. People can check it out. I, I thought it was really, it just so surprised me. I was walking along with it. I'm like, wait a minute. That must mean something weird is going on. And then I put it on just on one of my pages. Like, why would I do 77 GCs on a single page load? That's crazy. And so I just started exploring this and, and here we are. So did, did you, do you the whatever you're linking to, does it talk about how you can test how many garbage collections? Uh, let me see. Uh, I'm linking to a Twitter thread and way deep down. No, but there is a way to do it. If you if you go to the GC, you can say I think it's set debug stats or something. I'll I'll look it up real quick while um, we're talking. I'll, I'll throw it in at the end here. But yeah, it's there is a way to do it. Actually, I, I I got it right here. Hold on, give me just a sec. The way you do it is you say GC dot set underscore debug, and then you pass an enumeration, and the value is GC debug stats. Okay. So that thing was just lighting up my, you know, when I turned that on, it would just light up and just completely fill this, the terminal with debug, debug, or, you know, GC, 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 GC over and over and over when I hit the, that one page and then changing it, guess what? Made it better. Yeah. Now we should probably be PC about the GC and call the garbage collector, the, uh, the, 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 the programmatic, uh, sanitation engineer, but. <laughs> That's right. Well, it, it, it doesn't have, it doesn't, it doesn't take offense. It's, it's just there to help us out. <laughs> Brian, it's probably a pretty awesome library, honestly, the GC library. Probably, but it's built in. Um, yeah, so um, I'm, you know, of course, I'm susceptible on a listicle, um, but the... Uh, Who isn't? Uh, Come on. Right. But we don't cover them very much, but I really like this. So this this article is uh, top 10 Python libraries of 2020, but their criteria was interesting. The criteria was it has to be a library that was launched or popularized. Uh, it has to be well-maintained, has have maintenance changes since their launch date. Um, and it has to be just outright cool uh, that you should check it out. So um, I'm going to go through a handful of these. They, they listed 10. Uh, I don't know if all of them, since I'm, there's like four of them that are machine learning focused that I, I think cool is relative, but yeah. Um, but the first one, I, the first one was typer and I can't, I'm like, I'm, I'm really a fan of typer now. Was it really just 2020? And I went back and exactly. looked and it was released like, yeah, in December of 2019. So yeah, Sebastian Ramirez is killing it for sure. 
And then I looked and I'm like, well, Fast API, when did that come out? Well, that was the previous December. So uh, the end of 2018 released Fast API, and then Typer a year later, he's just crushing it. Yeah. So yeah, nice. Um, uh, both a huge fan of both of those. A big fan of Rich also. So Rich uh, actually just showed up this in last year in 2020. Um, and Rich is a beautiful, beautiful formatting in the terminal. And mm. yes, it's a beautiful. Oh, it's really great. Let me use that. that. Is- That's glorious. Um, I'm even using it even in applications where I just need these the tables. So if you need to print out a table in the command line, the the tables tables are kind of hard, and there were like weird other there were other table specialized table libraries. Um, but this one is great that you can it works. You don't have to specify the width. It like comes up with the width on its own, and then you um, if you you shrink the ter- terminal to really narrow or wide it'll word wrap correctly and stuff. Um, wow. And that's kind of incredible. Uh, so even if, even just for tables, I would. Yeah, Rich um, is awesome. The third one is Dear Pi GUI. I think we covered this. Maybe we could. I don't remember. I mean, we did go on our GUI rant, so it feels like it should be. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, a, a GUI project. Um, the uh, nice pictures, though, at least. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've been yeah. drooling over up. Yeah, I've, I've been drooling over Dear I'm GUI for a while. I haven't haven't had an opportunity to use it yet, but I've been looking at it. Like, so yeah. So the, uh, the last few I want to highlight: Pretty Errors looks neat. I haven't tried that yet, but it's um it's a way to uh, oh, yeah, that is glorious. Better as well. better tracebacks. Um, so I mean, ideally you don't show errors to people, but if you're going to, let's make them at least readable. This is well, great. And let's train ourselves too. You know, it's like yeah, you know we're true. gonna have to read the we're we're, we're going to spend at least half our life reading error messages. Face it. So let's at least make them readable. <laughs> yeah, and another quarter crying about the what we just couldn't figure out. Um, <laughs> and then uh, the last two that I want to highlight is diagrams and scaling. Um, diagrams is a library. Look at that uh, picture. Um, it's a way to do. It's intended for like um, cloud architecture drawings, um, but the it's written in in Python. You, you write these diagrams in Python. Um, and so because they're text, you can you check them in with version control. Oh, that's cool. Um, which is nice. I'd like to see these sorts of diagrams look more, would be great for not just, um, you know, network diagrams, other diagrams. Flowcharts would be great. Uh, I still um, flowchart. <laughs> yeah. So the last one is scaling, which um, is a uh, memory CPU and memory profiler in Python that, um, handles multi-threading well and distinguishes between Python versus non-memory usage runtime. That's um, pretty cool. I definitely need to try this out. Uh, I also like that you don't have to modify your code to use it. So you this at your instead. Of yeah, that's really cool. That. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, those are cool. Uh, there's a bunch of great ideas there. And man, I really need to find a use for Rich. <laughs> Solution to search of a problem again, but hey. I mean, <laughs> well, I write a lot of like a little terminal apps and stuff, and I'm just like, you know, maybe you'll put a little color in here or something and just, you know, I just need to take the time and go, no, this is a UI that I should pay more attention to, not just yeah. some random thing with text. Yeah. Well, we find this cool stuff. It's like, I want to, I want to use, I feel the need to use this somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. I had a little, so I had a little application where it's just like I said, with the tables and, um, and I'm like, I don't think it needs colors. I'm just showing a table. Um, but the default for rich is to show colors. So, and you don't have to pick them. It just picks them. Um, so the like the uh, the heading and the lines between were like different colors if you're on a color terminal. And if you're not on a color terminal, it works anyway. It just figures that out for you. And lovely. Love it. Yeah, that's awesome. It's awesome. It's, it's very awesome. Awesome. Speaking of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 
Pep 518 rolled out a while back. Uh, it was introducing this thing called uh, PyProject.toml. I guess it's pronounced Pommel or whatever. I'll say that Pi Project Pommel. Uh, so the idea behind this was that it was going to be this um, configuration file, you know, one configuration file to rule them all. And of course, we're, Python, we like things to be simple. Well, ironically, this turned into a really political thing, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around. So basically, the the, the nice thing about this repository is 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 keeping track of all the projects that have adopted Pi Project Pommel, either optionally or mandatory, um, for configurations so instead of having to have you know a dozen configuration files in your project for all these different tools you can just use this one and so it's got this big list what i find interesting is this part down here at the bottom uh if you go down to uh uh yeah just scroll just slightly here just slightly just a little bit up um that's gonna sound weird on the podcast anyway so if you're gonna, if you're gonna um uh, so these are projects that are quote unquote discussing the use of Pi Project Tomo. But if you actually look at these, it, it's kind of odd. Um, you know, the, the big sticking points, because these are the projects that are like stopping people from really just going all in on, on Pi Project Tomo. And there's even some, you know, talk about circular, you know, dependencies. Or some are like, well, I'll do it when they do it. And they're like, well, I will do it when they do it. Um, which makes you wonder if it's, it's an excuse. Uh, so my Pi is the weirdest. Weedo Van Rossum himself said, well, it doesn't solve anything. You know, someone said, can we just add this, please? Just add it. It's easy. Here, here's the PR. Someone even did the PR. He's like, nah, it doesn't solve anything. And he closed it. He closed it. It's like, uh, it does solve something. It's one less file I have to deal with. That is a solution. Um, Blake 8, um, they have a couple of concrete objections. One is the fact we don't have a standard Tomo parser in the Python uh, standard library. So that could be, you know, that could be a problem. Um, so you're adding another dependency to just support having this format. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but then again, it's, if it's a common dependency with a bunch of other, you know, tools that are already in use and it almost doesn't matter. Uh, Pip, um, someone said, I don't understand this. Pip to change its behavior. So mere presence of the file doesn't change functionality. I can't wrap my head around what he's referring to there. Maybe. A, but the stupid thing is someone already did flake nine, which is a, which an exact fork of flake eight that just adds high project Tommel. So it's like it's done. They just have to merge it. But it's yeah. and actually the same thing happened with uh Bandit. Uh someone actually implemented it in 2019. The PR's been sitting there untouched since 2019. So over years gone by, it's there and Bandit is not picking it up. They're just they're silent. Read the docs is saying it's too much work. Um like it's a lot of work for us to have the multiple uh pi oxidizer shockingly hasn't even said anything since 2019 they're they're like the they're like the new trendy like the trend setting packaging thing mm-hmm. and they haven't been saying anything about this this so i i'm trying to figure out why it is that this is so controversial because it seems so obvious you have one file to store all of the settings for all the different tools um and yet everybody seems to want to do their own thing with this well, I know that, you know, Pip Enf and Poetry and Flit and some of these other tools that suggest a workflow, I, I feel like I, I hear this file format being used along with those and, you know, telling people we're going to have a different way for you to like work with your projects and manage dependencies and stuff. And, you know, that I think that's part of the source of, of this. And I don't know if it's just necessarily all mixed together. Brian, what do you think? You, you know more about this than I do. Um, I think... Uh- a lot of projects are on the side of, like for instance, um, coverage was uh, was it? I don't know if they, where they are on the list that they adopted. Did they adopt it? Okay, yeah. Well, coverage had this thing, and and other tools were talking about, um, you know, there's no Tomo parser, and they 
they didn't have any other dependencies, so they didn't want to add a third-party dependency um, just for this. And and if they're just using it for packaging, however, or or settings or something. Mm-hmm. But um, the so I do I do think we will see a lot. I, I don't think it's a reasonable argument because um, there's there's reasons why you know the same thing reason why request isn't um, because they're making changes. But I do think that the like the format of Tomal basic format enough to get a pie project up um, isn't going to change much. Uh, so I think enough of a project uh, Tomal parser to handle pie project. Um, that's I think we need one of the something like that in the in in Py, built into Python. Yeah, just, especially since we have we have PEP five eighteen. So like we have some we have some standard already. Yeah. So I think we'll see a, a big. Uh, I would like to see at least. Uh, even if it isn't the mainstream one, if we have, if the, if most projects that are okay with the third party use something else uh, for a Tomal parser, but there's some built-in stri- stripped-down version in the in the standard library, I think that would, that's, I think that's for me. Yeah, I, I I see you could solve that problem by just vendoring it. Just like here's the two files that make up the parser. We're just gonna you know make it part of this package, so now we're good to go. I, I don't know. Sounds good. Well, I think that's it for all of our items. Um, Brian, you got anything actually you want to share with folks? Yeah, I'm. It's my birthday. Yay! Ooh, happy, birthday happy birthday, man! So I'm fifty. You're looking good for twenty. I was gonna say you're looking good for twenty eight, brother. <laughs> so I'm fifty one, and uh, I heard today that that's just one. Uh, I'm just shy of a full deck. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I've, I've never been accused of playing with a full deck myself. Um, but don't. I will say, don't let anyone tell you that you're old because. Uh, it says in the first chapter chapter of Genesis, thou uh, and then God said, man's year shall be limited to 120. Half of 120 is 60, so it is biblical that 60 is middle-aged. You're not even middle-aged yet. <laughs> You've got a way to go. I mean, so, it's, it's, it's the Bible. <laughs> I, I keep telling everybody that I don't look a day over 73. <laughs> oh, you're good, man. Uh, a couple of happy birthdays. And also, you're going to ask if you're still a fan of Flit. Yeah, I love Flit. Especially since they adopted the uh, source source directory. Yeah, that's right. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that J- saved my life a times. <laughs> Jason, anything extra that you want to throw out there? I mean, um, maybe people have a place they could get notified about your upcoming book or something like that. Yeah, you know, fo- following me on Twitter is, is probably the the best way to do that. I'm Codemouse nine two on Twitter. Um, and then uh, actually, I follow No Starch Press too. I mean, No Starch Press is awesome to begin with. Like, That's where you're doing the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're, they're my publisher. No Starch. I don't think they, they've ever put out a bad book. <laughs> I love that publisher. So, um, I was I I can you can actually you can ask my mother when I got when I got when my book contract got accepted. I, I actually screamed, um, very uh, high pitched. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah. yeah, follow follow No Starch Press for updates on on that and all their other awesome. They got some other incredible books coming out too. And. So I'll go ahead and ask her. So what's your mom's Twitter handle? Oh, well, no. my, my mom's Twitter handle? Oh, um, she doesn't have a Twitter handle, actually. Oh, so I'll, I'll, I'll have to put you in touch directly, I think, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, cool. Thanks for being here again. Yeah. So I have a, a couple of items to throw out here, actually. This almost, Brian, this almost could have been an extra, 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 extra here all about it, but they're real short, so I, I didn't do that. Uh, Django 315 is released. Django 3, didn't we just, just go to Django 2 or something? That's, I mean, that's good. That's really good to hear. Uh, so awesome on that. Python 3.10 Alpha 4 is available for testing. Now the new parser is going to be in that one, which is going to be. Oh, that's the, the peg parser that Gita's been working on? Yeah, that's going to be, that, that's going to, that's going to revolutionize the language eventually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it'll definitely make it uh, possible to do more. And in releases, SciPy 160 was released. 
Uh, I learned about a cool project. So we talked about like avoiding Excel for the Python data science stack, right? Like just stop doing Excel. There's all these weird errors. Like the the organization that defines or governs how you can name genes has come up with rules for names you can't use. And the reason they can't be used is they'll be parsed incorrectly into other data types by Excel, for example. So there's a lot of <laughs> issues you might run into with Excel. And, and and that's all good, but there's this project called PyXLL, and this is actually a paid product. They're not sponsoring the show. I just think it's kind of neat, so spreading the word. But anyway, if it's interesting for you, what you can do is it's a plugin for Excel that will embed Jupyter into Excel and allow you to write functions and macros in Excel in Python. So basically, it almost adds the program, Python, the programming language to Excel, which is good. Yeah. It's better than VBA. Uh, let's see. No, I um, started in VBA. Tell me about it. <laughs> Anything's better than VBA. <laughs> so, uh, someone on Twitter asked if, um, PyCharm works okay on my Apple Mac mini M1 and they PyCharm and JetBrains in general just released a whole bunch of their tooling with different installs for the Apple Silicon native versions. Mm. And so I've got a, a cool little video, um, that I'm going to link to in the show notes. It's just like a five second video of here. I open up PyCharm and you, you basically, from the time you click on open project till the project's open, if you've opened a project before, so that, that caveat, but at that point, if you click on it, you cannot perceive click. Like by the time you're letting up the mouse, the whole, the project is loaded and ready to work on. It's like, it's insane. Beautiful. I I, I will, I will consider picking up PyCharm again when they add live share into it. They have they're they're working on it. It's Good. called there's something called code with me. Yeah, yeah. So I have not tried it. I have no one to code with. I'm sorry, but <laughs> email me <laughs> later. Did. We'll set something up. Yeah, exactly. We'll go. We'll, <laughs> we'll go together. Uh, so also since I got my M1 like three four weeks ago, whatever, I've only used used uh, this for all my Python work, and apparently it's it's still going strong. I even had to send in my MacBook Pro because it had starting sh- started shut. The battery was so bad it would shut down at seventy five percent. Like, you know, when it like gets too low, it'll shut down. And as the battery gets bad, maybe it shuts down at 10% instead of zero. If I'm doing video work, it'll actually shut down at 75% until I plug it back in. So, so it's all in one until that comes back. Uh, well, I'm, I'm still on my system 76 Linux. I can't speak to Apple. I do yeah. love my system 76. I, that, that's cool. I, I just, I think this whole um, like new ARM architecture stuff that they're doing, it's, it's going to be interesting. You know, I think Microsoft's following suit or trying in parallel with them. Uh, it just felt to me like Intel and AMD, that's just the way it was going to be forever. And it's not necessarily the case. I, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with, com- I don't have a problem with competition. What I have a problem with is software companies making their own, you know, architecture and it only works on their architecture. That's yeah. what you move towards. And then you wind up with a totally fragmented industry. I think that's, yeah, that's not going to be great. No. Don't do it. Microsoft. It's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, that, that's my extra, 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 Brian. Nice. Yeah, I I want to get an M1. I'd like to get a Mini. Yeah, the Mini is fantastic. I I really really like it. You need a joke? It's not even funny. It's not even a. It's not even a joke. I'm I'm being serious. But we do need a joke. Yes. Oh, I have a joke. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you got the joke this week. Yeah. I actually do have the joke this week. Yeah, and uh, so why why did the programmer always refuse to check his code into the repository? Why? He was afraid to commit. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you want to, if you want a regular dose of my, of my, that is one of my originals. So if you want a regular dose of my absolutely horrific puns, you can follow me on Twitter at your own peril. I post it uh, every, every Monday. I've got a new one. So awesome. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. See y'all. Thanks everyone out there uh, on the live stream and thanks everyone who listened. See y'all.